0: When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. Today, we're going to read the story of uh, Ishmael and some of the really difficult things of his life and his mother's life, but also um, commemorate King Charles the Martyr, Charles I. I invite you to Google him and uh, remember his death on this day. I'm glad you're here. Um, The book of Genesis, chapter 21. The Lord was attentive to Sarah, just as he had said, And the Lord carried out just what he had promised her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Abraham when he was old, at the very time God had told him. Abraham named his son, the one Sarah bore him, Isaac. And that means he laughs. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, just as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. Sarah said, God has given me laughter. Everyone who hears about it will laugh with me. She said, who could have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse sons? But now I've given birth to a son when he was old. The boy grew and stopped nursing. On the day he stopped nursing, Abraham prepared a huge banquet Sarah saw Hagar's son laughing, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne Abraham. So she said to Abraham, send this servant away with her son. This servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. This upset Abraham terribly because the boy was his son. God said to Abraham, don't be upset about the boy and your servant. Do everything Sarah tells you to do, because your descendants will be traced through Isaac. But I will make of your servant's son a great nation too, because he is also your descendant. Abraham got up early in the morning, took some bread and a flask of water, and gave it to Hagar. He put the boy in her shoulder sling and sent her away. She left and wandered through the desert near Beersheba. Finally, the water in the flask ran out, and she put the boy down under one of the desert shrubs. She walked away from him about as far as a bow shot and sat down, telling herself, I can't bear to see the boy die. She sat at a distance, cried out in grief and wept. God heard the boy's cries, and God's messenger called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, Hagar, what is wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cries over there. Get up, pick up the boy and take him by the hand because I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well. And she went over and filled the water flask and gave the boy a drink. God remained with the boy. He grew up, lived in the desert and became an expert archer. He lived in the Paran Desert, and his mother found him an Egyptian wife. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot of laughter in this story. Laughter at the absurdity of a pregnancy at 100. Laughter at Sarah, who is of advanced maternal age at the time of giving birth, I think she's a little bit younger than Abraham, but still over 80 or 90. I forget what it said earlier. And so people will laugh when they see her holding this baby and they ask, Is this your grandchild? And she says, Nope, it's my child. There will be laughter. There was laughter when the baby was announced to be born. And then there's this laughter that results in a horrific event at this party that Abraham throws for his son who's just stopped nursing. Ishmael, the older brother, the older brother, the son of Abraham, but also um, the son of Abraham's servant, Hagar, he is laughing, and out of that laughter comes an offense. Um, And Sarah, his wife, is upset, and says, send the servant away with her son. The narrator here reminds us that Hagar is an Egyptian. She is a slave or a servant, of Abraham and Sarah, really of Sarah. She is owned by her as property and therefore has no rights. And yet she has born Abraham a son. So there is that connection, that right, if you will. The narrator reminds us of that as if he is telling us that this is a complex situation that is so tense that something bad is going to happen. Abraham is upset at this, it says. He's angry um, that he is being forced to send away Hagar and Ishmael. His, for him, it's his firstborn son. And so this sending away happens. But God does promise both Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael that God's going to bless Ishmael that he will not go into the desert and disappear. He won't go into the desert and die, but he will be the father of a great nation just as Abraham is. Um, But it's pretty hard to believe that when Hagar sets out with her child and with this one water skin and some bread, the water runs out just as it always does the things that we carry in life that we think will get us through, um, are never enough, never enough. Um, And the water runs out in this time of great hardship. And there she walks about as far as a bow shot after she puts her son under a shrub or there in the desert, lays him down in the desert under a little shrub, a little bit of shade and she goes a bow shot away. A bow shot is a pretty long distance, 100 yards, 200 yards, pretty far. Far enough away so that she can cry and he can't hear her. Far enough away so she won't watch him die. It is a bleak scene. It is a scene that Many who have crossed the deserts of this world have experienced leaving someone behind who can't make it. A friend, a child, a loved one, a traveling companion. Certainly on our southern border today, we remember all those who cross at great peril to their lives. Over the decades and years in the the devil's highway, as it's called, um, trying to search for a better life and dying there in the, the hot sun, Um, This is a really difficult scene that is painted here for us. It's a bow shot away. It's a long ways. But God heard the boy's cries. And God does hear our cries when no one else does, when the desert doesn't hear, when Abraham doesn't hear. When Sarah doesn't hear, when none of the other people in the story can listen, God hears, and God sends an angel right away. Don't be afraid. God has heard you. Pick up the boy. He's going to have be. He's going to have a great nation come out of him. God opens her eyes. Remember, before she names the God that she meets there in the desert before the God who sees and now the same God opens her eyes and there's a well of water. They have enough. They're going to survive. They drink this water. Notice that she gives the water to him first before she drinks. Um, We see here in Hagar, someone who um, the narrator has told us she is not a good person. This is the stuff that they say earlier about her. She's not good. She's an Egyptian. She's not part of the covenant. She's, you know, the narrator even tells us that, you know, she's not someone that you would expect God's love to flow through. And yet she is the one in the story who shows the love of God more than anybody else. This is always the way it is. God is always working at the margins, on the fringes of what we think is good and right and approved. God is always at work. And the people that are doing what God's work are often not recognized to be those who can, but they always are the ones showing love. And there, uh, this boy who was placed a bow shot away so that his mother wouldn't watch him die becomes a great archer. The irony in the story is there. The one who... Uh, while nearly dying had this bow shot distance, now becomes a great archer. And there he builds his own family in the Paran Desert. His mother finds him an Egyptian wife. That's the last line of his story. After that, we don't meet Ishmael again. He goes with God in his own direction with his own story. And so it is with us. Um, When the water runs out, God gives us the water we need. So cry out to God today for what you need from God. There is a well nearby. You can't see it yet, but it's just around the corner. Amen. ...world at all, but people from his world are going, establishing colonies here in New England and Virginia. And uh, it is a tumultuous time in in the life of the nation. Tumultuous for a number of reasons, but one of them is that uh, the country's trying to work out what kind of religion will be the official religion of England. The Reformation is long over. There's the Church of England. It is a separate uh, Protestant church existing in the realms of England uh, and Wales that um, has bishops and priests and deacons a 3 order of ministry, just like the Roman Catholics have done. Um, up in Scotland, though, where James where Charles is born, uh, they have a Presbyterian church that is the official uh, state church of Scotland. Um, the kingdoms are united in the United Kingdoms, but they are governed separately uh, with separate churches. And there are many people in England at this time who feel like bishops are really, really bad. And they have some good reasons for that. Um, bishops own a huge amount of land, usually. They are, um, they are wealthy. Uh, many, of them, uh, many of them are really good bishops and some of them aren't. Um, they are corrupt like any power system in, in many ways. And is that corruption and elitism that causes a lot of complaints among the people of England. Bishops at that time, as they are today, are still sitting in the House of Lords, just like our Senate here in the United States um, is composed of a lot less, lower number of senators than House of Representatives. Um, the Senate is very similar to the House of Lords in the UK, and, um, and bishops sit in the House of Lords very odd that you'd have a bunch of bishops as governing, governing in the House of Lords. And so it is these, um, and also the, the fact that um, as popular movements of, of Protestantism and revivalism are kind of starting and stopping and starting and stopping in England, it is the bishops and the priests who are loyal to the bishops that are kind of crushing a lot of that. So, uh, at this time, all the people who are called dissenters—people that don't want to be Church of England Presbyterians and and really Baptists as we know them now today—many uh, of them are leaving and coming to the New World as a refuge to get away from uh, these Anglican Church of England bishops, who, um, who you know are. Uh, doing their best in many ways to preserve the Church of England, but in so doing, at times, are really cutting off a lot of dissent without really listening to them very well. That's a very short summary of the situation. Charles I comes to the throne. Um, He is a very devoted Christian. He prays often, he attends services, he, um, he really believes that the Church of England is a good thing with its bishops. But in his reign, a civil war breaks out. It's called the English Civil War. You have a group of Protestants who are led by Parliament uh, going against the Royalists, who, are the, who the King of England is the head of. Charles I leads this Royalist army with his cousin, Prince Rupert, and they are defeated um, eventually. At the Battle of Naseby and Oliver Cromwell becomes the Lord Protector of England. At the end of the English Civil War, um, Charles realizes that um, the war is lost. He is taken captive. Um, He tries to work out a couple deals to preserve Presbyterianism in Scotland, because he is born in Scotland, um, but the deal falls through. Parliament puts him on trial and says, if you let us get rid of the bishops in the Church of England, um, you, you know, we, we, we won't, we'll kind of let you be king and, and keep that going. Um, Charles refuses to do that and says, I'd rather die as a Church of England Catholic king. I would rather die uh, for my faith than um, see the Church of England fall. So, to preserve the church, he goes to his death. A number of judges sign his death warrant. Um, after this trial that he, he says he is above the law as king, he can't be put on trial. Um, draw your own parallels there. Uh, unlike a president, the king of England um, is not yet what we would call a constitutional monarchy. Um, they are, he is the king. And so this struggle between parliament and king results in his martyrdom. He bravely goes to the scaffold to have his head chopped off he it's a cold morning january 31st there in england and he says let me wear two shirts so that i will not shiver and people will think i'm afraid he says goodbye to two of his children the night before his wife uh, and other children have fled to france um, and he is there executed there's a great If you search YouTube, Death of Charles I, there's a great movie that comes out in the 70s or 80s that sort of depicts his final moments there in a really powerful way. But he becomes a a martyr, um, a martyr for the church and preserving the church. Uh, Anglicans sort of pick that up. You can see a couple shrines here to his memory um, and Anglicans. Um, remember him as the holy martyr, the royal martyr, although the church in America um, has never done that. Some of the men who signed his death warrant, the judges uh, fled to America and came to Connecticut um, and and hid there uh, while they were sort of hunted down after the restoration of Charles II. His son comes to the throne, the The uh, the days of Oliver Cromwell come to an end, and the um, Church of England with its bishops are established again in England. The English Civil War was in some ways worse than our American Civil War um, in its destruction, in the kind of uh, things that happened. Uh, The English Civil War in some ways would be like if the Confederacy had won um, and beaten the North and and all of America became the Confederacy. Um that's kind of what happened in England. But eventually, Charles II comes back to the throne and establishes the Church of England again. And then his successors down the line to the most recent king of England, Charles III, who is third in the line of names to Charles I. Um, so remembering Charles I, we remember the complexities of government that Christians have always faced. There is never a perfect government. Um, whether it's um, our form of government a democracy a republic or a um, monarchy there's never a perfect form of government and yet uh, as Christians we call on our leaders um, who claim to be Christian to uphold uh, the faith um, which which also means the tolerance of people that disagree with us we live in a pluralistic society and so Um, Whoever's in charge needs to protect the rights of everybody. But um, we also call on them to um, support the life of churches um, as they are important to the life of our nation. And Charles I is someone who does this in a really exemplary way, even at the cost of his life. And so remembering him, he's a very different kind of martyr. But he's somebody that I think tells us a story of where we get our faith from. The Episcopal Church um, comes out of the Church of England in America after the Revolutionary War. We become the Episcopal Church, but we still carry with us that that idea that you can participate in the life of this world and still be a Christian. You can work in the government. You can serve your country. Um, You can be a a part of things um, in a way that the Puritans and the pilgrims and Baptists and other um, early um, inhabitants of America did not believe um, that they could participate in the Church of England, in the government, and in the life of the nation. And so we still stand for that. So let's pray this collect for holy martyr, royal martyr. O Lord, we offer unto thee all praise and thanks for the glory of thy grace that shine forth in thine anointed servant, Charles. And we beseech thee to give us all grace that, by a careful, studious imitation of this thy blessed saint and martyr, that we may be made worthy to receive benefits of his prayers, which he, in communion with the church Catholic, offers up unto thee, for that part of it here militant. Through thy Son, our blessed Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You can see in that prayer, he is the last saint that the Church of England makes, um, officially. And um, he is an example to us here on earth. So remember him today.